Good evening. Three teens dead and at least six others injured in a Michigan high school shooting. A 15-year-old student is being held. Barbados dumps the queen to become a republic as the Prince of Wales raises the specter of slavery. Day two in the sex trafficking trial of Ghislaine Maxwell and a key debate on abortion at the Supreme Court. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. Another shooting at a high school takes young lives near Detroit today. Authorities say at least eight people were wounded in an attack at a Michigan high school in which three students were killed. Oakland County Under Sheriff Mike McCabe said at a news conference that two of the wounded were undergoing surgery as of 5 p.m. today and that the six others were in stable condition. He identified the three students who were killed as a 16-year-old boy and two girls ages 14 and 17. We received a 911 call of an active shooter at the high school. Deputies immediately responded, and uh, we received over 100 911 calls into our dispatch center, over 100. Um, the uh, deputies uh, took a suspect into custody within five minutes of the original 911 call. They recovered a handgun from the suspect. The suspect fired multiple shots. There's multiple victims. Uh, it's unfortunate that I have to report that we have three deceased victims right now who are all believed to be students. We have six others that were shot. One was a school teacher. They're all at local hospitals being treated for various injuries. Um, again, uh, multiple shots were fired. He did not give us any resistance when he was taken into custody. He's currently being transported back to Pontiac uh, for potential. Well, I, he's already already invoked his right to, to not speak. So he wants an attorney. He's not telling us anything at this point in time. Um, it's a very tragic situation, obviously. We will brief you again later, maybe around 5 o'clock. We can give you ages of the victims, conditions of the victims, where they live, things of that nature. Uh, behind us in the mire, they've closed the store down for us and helped us with uh, reunification with the parents. We've got a lot of upset parents wanting to know the uh, what's going on with their kids. There was an orderly evacuation. The school did everything right. Everybody uh, uh, remained in place. They barricaded themselves. Tim here has done a great job in terms of preparing. You never want to prepare for something like this, but you have to. And the school district's done a wonderful job preparing. All the doors over there are marked at the high school if you've seen them. And that's Oakland County Under Sheriff Mike McCabe. That's Oakland, Michigan. Authorities didn't immediately release the names of the suspects or victims. About 1,700 students attend the school. Tim Throne, the superintendent of Oxford Community Schools, said he didn't know yet the victims' names or whether their families have been contacted. I, I really don't have anything uh, more to say other than that uh, you certainly can pray for our families here in Oxford and our students. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm learning uh, information real time just as you all are, so I, I really don't have any more info to add. Or, uh, Should any light so, on who the student is, a 15-year-old? Uh, I, I can't, know. What's your reaction to this? Oh, of course, I'm shocked. And that was the superintendent of the Oxford Community Schools. Meanwhile, President Biden was promoting his infrastructure plan, but he took time to offer condolences. Before I get into my remarks and any detail, I was informed after the tour, I learned about a school shooting in Michigan. We learned, uh, well, as we learned the full details, my heart goes out. 
to the families enduring the unimaginable grief of losing a loved one. Apparently, there are somewhere in the order of nine people shot and several, have, or three, I think, are dead. And the young man, I think, is, as I understand it from staff, is about 15 years old, and he, uh, he turned himself in. Um, and uh, just said he, and he claimed his uh, right against self-incrimination and handed over his pistol. That's all we know about it, but uh, you've got to know that that whole community has to be just in a state of shock right now. But look, uh, one of the things that I want to mention is I want to tell you about the infrastructure laws. And school administrators posted two letters to parents on the school's website this month, earlier this month. Uh, so there were problems that were leading up to this. According to the letter that was posted, the school was responding to rumors of a threat against the school following a bizarre vandalism incident. According to the November 4th letter written by Principal Steve Wolf, someone threw a deer head into a courtyard from the school's roof, painted several windows on the roof with red acrylic paint, and used the same paint on concrete near the school building. Without specifically referencing that incident, a second post on November 12th assured there has been no threat to our building nor our students. And in international news, the Caribbean nation of Barbados stopped pledging allegiance to Queen Elizabeth II today as it shed another vestige of its colonial past and became a republic for the first time in history. For hundreds of years, the British monarch was ruler of Barbados, even after independence as the island became a member with other former colonies of the Commonwealth of Nations. God Save the Queen was the former anthem. But overnight, fireworks peppered the sky at midnight as Barbados officially became that republic with screens set up across the island so people could watch the event that featured an orchestra with more than 100 steel pan players and numerous singers, poets and dancers as the country celebrated as the new leader took office. From this day and forever, declare Barbados a parliamentary republic. Please stand. Once the colors are in their rightful place on the parade, the president of Barbados, Her Excellency, the most honorable Dame Sandra Mason, will be accorded her very first presidential salute. The drive to become a republic began more than 20 years ago and culminated with the island's parliament electing its first ever president last month in a two-thirds majority vote. Barbados didn't need permission from the UK to become a republic, although the island will remain a member of the Commonwealth realm. It's an event that the Caribbean hasn't experienced since the 1970s when Guyana, Dominica, and Trinidad and Tobago became republics. Barbados became independent from the United Kingdom originally in November 1966, more than three centuries after English settlers arrived and turned the island into a wealthy sugar colony based on the work of hundreds of thousands of African slaves. Prince Charles, the Queen's son, made reference to the slave past in a speech he gave at the event. 
the creation of this republic offers a new beginning, but it also marks a point on a continuum, a milestone on the long road you have not only traveled, but which you have built. From the darkest days of our past and the appalling atrocity of slavery, which forever stains our history, the people of this island forged their path with extraordinary fortitude. Your long journey has brought you to this moment, not as your destination, but as a vantage point from which to survey a new horizon. Prince Charles, the son of England's Queen Elizabeth II. During this ceremony, the Prime Minister, Sandra Mason, awarded pop star Rihanna the honor of National Hero of Barbados that comes with the title, The Right Excellent. She said, may you continue to shine like a diamond and bring honor to your nation by your words, by your actions, and do credit wherever you shall go. God bless you, my dear, Motley told the singer, who placed her palm over her heart and said, thank you. Meanwhile, Barbadians enjoyed their newfound status. As the ceremony ended, officials lowered the Queen's royal standard for the last time in Barbados. In a statement, Queen Elizabeth II congratulated the island for its momentous stay and said she looked forward to an ongoing friendship between the two nations. Barbados's flag, coat of arms, and national anthem will remain the same, but certain references will change. That's according to a columnist for the Barbados Today newspaper, writing that the terms royal and crown will no longer be used, so the Royal Barbados Police Force will become the Barbados police service and crown lands will become state lands it's the beginning of a new era any barbadian can aspire now to be our head of state he wrote and here in the united states mark meadows donald trump's former chief of staff is cooperating with a house panel investigating the january 6th capital insurrection putting off for now the panel's threat to hold him in contempt the panel will continue to assess his degree of compliance. Mississippi Representative Benny Thompson, who's chair of the committee, said in a statement, adding Meadows has produced records and will soon appear for an initial deposition. The agreement comes after two months of negotiations between Meadows and the committee and after the Justice Department indicted longtime Trump ally Steve Bannon for defying a subpoena. Meadows' lawyer had previously indicated that his client would not comply, a stance the committee said was unacceptable. Former President Trump who told his supporters to fight like hell that morning, has attempted to hinder much of the committee's work, including in an ongoing court case, by arguing that Congress cannot obtain information about his private White House conversations. And in more Washington news, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell took a sharp and unexpected turn today toward tightening credit for consumers and businesses in the face of mounting concerns about high inflation. Powell signaled that the Fed will likely act more quickly to phase out its ultra-low interest rate policies, even as the emergence of the new Omicron variant of COVID-19 has raised fresh doubts about the future of the economy and the direction of inflation. Powell said the inflation that inflation would eventually ease, but not until the supply chain problems plaguing the economy are solved, which he expects to happen next year. Supply and demand imbalances have contributed to notable price increases in some areas. Supply chain problems have made it difficult for producers to meet strong demand, particularly for goods. Increases in energy prices and rents are also pushing inflation upward. 
As a result, overall inflation is running well above our 2% longer-run goal, with the PCE price index up 5% over the 12 months ending in October. Most forecasters, including at the Fed, continue to expect that inflation will move down significantly over the next year as supply and demand imbalances abate. It is difficult to predict the persistence and effects of supply constraints, but it now appears that factors pushing inflation upward will linger well into next year. And that's Jerome Powell. And in more news in the nation's capital, tomorrow, a major abortion case is being heard at the Supreme Court. And the justices have heard up till now from thousands of people and organizations urging the court to either save or scrap two historic abortion decisions. But tomorrow, they'll hear from just three lawyers, one representing the state of Mississippi, another representing Mississippi's only abortion clinic, and the last representing the Biden administration. For each, it's a chance to be part of what is likely to be an historic case. They are scheduled to appear before the justices for just over an hour's worth of arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, though the arguments will likely go longer. Mississippi is asking the justices to overturn two seminal decisions, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, decisions that say women have a constitutional right to abortion before a fetus is viable. Lawyers who argued these those historic cases became famous in their own ways. Sarah Weddington was just 26 when in 1971 she argued Roe v. Wade on behalf of Norma Jean McCovery, who was known by the pseudonym Jane Roe. Weddington went on to a career in government and academia. Opposing her was Texas Attorney Jay Floyd, who became infamous for opening his argument with a failed attempt at humor. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word, he said. When the high court ordered the case re-argued, Floyd was replaced. Two, case, two decades later, when the court heard arguments in the Casey case, Pennsylvania Attorney General Ernest Preet Jr. argued in support of his state's abortion law. He later spent time in prison for secretly taking campaign contributions from the operators of illegal gambling machines. The lawyer arguing on behalf of President George H.W. Bush's administration and in support of Pennsylvania, meanwhile, was Ken Starr. It was two years before he was tapped to lead the investigation that led to President Bill Clinton's impeachment. The third attorney who argued in the case, Catherine Colbert co-founded the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is involved in tomorrow's case. And uh, that case, which is going to be uh, quite momentous in the uh, the history of uh, a woman's right to choose and how the Constitution of the United States is going to be interpreted from this point on, was the subject of an interview I did earlier today with uh, attorney Marjorie Cohen, former head of the National Lawyers Guild and uh, well-known to WBI listeners. Supreme Court can either squarely overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is what the state of Mississippi is asking them to do, or they could um, severely limit the right to abortion, um, and they might do that instead because they may be worrying about um, a backlash in the elections among Democrats and many Republicans who don't want abortion completely outlawed, um, so they might take that middle ground. On the other hand, keep in mind that five of the right-wingers on the court, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, all voted to allow the Texas SB8 to go into effect even without any briefing or arguments or lower court input. Um, 
And uh, so they allowed that to go into effect, and that's a bit more egregious than the Mississippi law because it allows, it, it prohibits abortions, all abortions, after six weeks of pregnancy um, with, uh, with no exception for rape or incest, and most women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Uh, so the fact that they, the, the five right-wingers, allowed that SB-8 to go into effect, even though ultimately I don't think that uh, SB-8 will be upheld for procedural reasons, that indicates to me that uh, they have the right to abortion uh, in their, in their uh, crosshairs. What do you think they mean when they say the court hasn't done enough to prepare America for this? It's hard to say because the, there have been several polls, and by and large, those polls show that a majority of people in the United States don't want abortion overruled, they uh, completely abolished, they don't mind limitations on abortion, and that's what the court's been doing, death of abortion by a thousand cuts, where they continue to limit it. Chief Justice Roberts, who is unfortunately not a swing vote anymore because Trump succeeded in packing the court with an extreme right-wing majority, probably more than we've seen in memory. But Roberts, last year, provided the fifth vote to strike down a restriction on abortion in Mississippi, and he quoted Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and he also voted against allowing Texas's SB8 to go into effect without briefing and lower court input. But even if he joins the three liberals in refusing Mississippi's request to overturn Roe v. Wade, that still leaves the other five right-wingers who may well take this as an opportunity to just overrule it completely. You have the right-wing, the evangelicals, who have been gunning for Roe v. Wade for years. Trump pledged to put people on the Supreme Court who would overturn Roe v. Wade, and I think uh, he was largely successful, and of course it remains to be seen. If they overturn Casey, if they overturn Roe, and especially if they have these rules they want to pass now with uh, allowing people to go around and, uh, and enforce laws like vigilantes, what kind of country would we be living in under a system like that legally? That's very frightening because in an amicus brief, in this Mississippi case, which the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments on tomorrow, a brief filed by the Texas Right to Life said that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, then Lawrence v. Texas, which struck down a Texas law prohibiting gay sex, and Obergefell v. Hodges, which held that the Constitution guarantees the right to same-sex marriages, would necessarily fall because the brief filed by Texas Right to Life says they are as lawless as Roe. So if the right-wingers evangelicals succeed in getting the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, then the next item on their agenda is probably going to be gay sex, same-sex marriage. There have been a number of abortion cases that have reached the Supreme Court, but none of them have squarely asked the justices to overturn Roe v. Wade, and Mississippi in this case that the Supreme Court will hear tomorrow is asking the court to squarely do that. And that is Marjorie Cohen speaking about the 
arguments that were going to be heard tomorrow uh, in front of the United States Supreme Court on the state of Mississippi's attempt to overturn Roe v. Wade and other laws that uh, uh, protect the woman's right to choose. And in New York, in more New York news, a woman testified today that British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell was often in the room when the witness, then just 14, had sexual interactions with the financier, Jeffrey Epstein. Maxwell was very casual, the witness told a New York City jury, like it was no big deal. She claimed a defendant instructed her on how to give Epstein sexual massages and sometimes physically participated in the encounters as well. The witness, using the pseudonym Jane, was the first of four alleged victims expected to testify against Maxwell at a New York City trial where she's charged with recruiting and grooming girls for Epstein to sexually abuse for sexual abuse from 1994 to at least 2004. The witness first met Epstein in 1994 when she was attending a music camp in pursuit of a singing career. He came up to her, she said, and introduced himself as a donor. They discovered that they both lived in Palm Beach, Florida, she said. The woman and her mother soon received invitations to Epstein's home. He and Maxwell would then take her shopping for clothes, including underwear, from Victoria's Secret. The cycle of abuse started when Epstein abruptly took the witness by hand one day, according to her testimony, and said, follow me, before taking her to a pool house at the home. We'll leave the rest of the disturbing testimony to the listener's imagination. An attorney for one of Epstein's alleged victims, Lisa Bloom, spoke outside the court in Manhattan today. I thought yesterday was a very strong day for the prosecution. Uh, you know, as an attorney for sexual abuse survivors myself, I think that the prosecution very clearly and concisely laid out their case that there are four victims here, that Elaine Maxwell knew everything that Jeffrey Epstein was doing, that she trafficked these women, that she was a part of all of it. On the defense side, I thought it was a weak opening statement. I give them about a C to call Jeffrey Epstein the 21st century James Bond to go on about how he was so intelligent and charming. Uh, really to write this love letter to Jeffrey Epstein, I thought was a very bad move for the defense. And that is Lisa Bloom, an attorney for one of the witnesses who claims that they were uh, victims of sexual trafficking and exploitation by financier Jeffrey Epstein, who committed suicide in prison and his associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, who's uh, currently on trial for allegedly uh, helping uh, Epstein uh, gather these women into his, uh, into his network. And we'll be following this trial and probably have a lot more on it as time goes on. Uh, here in New York, by the way, you're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Uh, interesting new development. New York City has opened its first overdose prevention center, a place where people can go to legally inject heroin and other drugs without fear of arrest and in the presence of medical and other experts, as well as being close to uh, folks who can help them. Uh, get uh, assistance in different ways and to possibly even kick their habit or at least uh, using the principles of harm reduction, uh, use those uh, drugs in a safer way. Uh, New York City, it turns out, is leading, especially the South Bronx within New York City, is leading the country in the numbers of people who are dying of Overdoses, putting a lie to the uh, often told story that most people who are using heroin are in suburban and rural parts of the country. The fact is, the ground zero for overdose epidemic is right here in New York. We spoke with Mar uh, with uh, Melissa Moore, 
who is the uh, director of the Drug Policy Alliance, who described the new centers and what they're about. Overdose prevention centers are also known as safer consumption spaces. They provide a sanctioned safe space for people to consume pre-obtained drugs in a controlled setting and under the supervision of people who are medically trained who also have access to sterile consumption equipment and tools to be able to check their supply for the presence of fentanyl. And if anything were to go wrong, if somebody does have an overdose, for example, people are on staff and immediately ready to be able to reverse that overdose. But one of the other crucial things about them is that participants can also receive health care and counseling and referrals to health and social services, including drug treatment. So it's a way to be able to bring folks in and be able to connect them with the sort of care that will be crucial if people are navigating problematic substance use. How did that occur? How is it possible to have a place where drugs that are illegal are legally consumed? What happened with today's announcement was the expansion of services that will be available at different harm reduction providers. And so the pilot programs will be located at programs that have already been operating and serving this population for quite some time through syringe exchange services and other harm reduction care that they're providing. So they're basically adding on an additional layer of support and really life-saving intervention that'll be available. As we're in this moment, you know, the data was just released today from the Department of Health over the 2020 overdoses in New York City, and we saw skyrocketing increase from what was already a crisis level prior to the pandemic. We now have lost over 2,000 people just in a year to overdoses, and that's more than traffic accidents, homicides, and suicides combined in New York City. And that's marked with extreme racial disparities. The South Bronx, for example, has overdose rates that are among the highest of anywhere in the country. And that's really due to lack of resources and the lack of supports and harm reduction that is available to people. So we want to change that. So it isn't what they always say. It's uh, white middle class men who lost their job and uh, are facing the decline of Christian white conservative society. That's not actually what's happening, even though you hear that a lot. The media narrative has been quite skewed on this, and we've been calling that out for a long time. In New York City, where we saw a 37% increase in overdose deaths just in the span of one year from 2019 to 2020, that's an increase of more than 565 people that died. And of that, Black New Yorkers had the highest rates of overdose deaths, both in absolute terms as well as the rate. And that's something that has been the case for years. Harm reductionists have been calling out the really dire racial disparities that we've been seeing, even at a time when there were increasing rates of overdose in suburban areas, those areas were first to get resources. What we've been seeing is, unfortunately, residents of the South Bronx have just continually been grappling with this crisis without the levels of support that are needed. The Upper East Side, uh, that we get all these facilities, why aren't other neighborhoods getting these facilities? frankly, a need to have facilities like this throughout the city. You know, overdose is at extreme levels everywhere. And the feasibility study that was commissioned by the New York City Council showed that these are most effective when they're located closest to where people are in need of them. So being able to cite them, as will happen with these pilots in programs that are already in existence, already serving this population, but there should actually be an expansion so that 
there isn't a super concentration or a saturation in just one part of the city because we know that overdose is hitting people all across the city and we actually need to make sure that people have access. Marijuana, cannabis, they were managed to pretty much legalize that or at least really move us in that direction. Is that going to happen, you think, with cocaine and heroin and these kind of drugs? There's um, uh, an ongoing conversation about what the best policy approach should be. We're 50 years in now to the war on drugs, as it was declared by former President Nixon. And we're at this point where we have the highest levels of overdose that we've ever seen. So clearly that criminalization and enforcement and prohibition approach is not serving us if our goal is to save lives and have thriving communities. So I think this shows, you know, and this is really turning the tide toward a new approach that's centered in evidence-based policies that'll actually save lives and what the what the data actually show us, which is that prohibition hasn't worked. So decriminalizing drugs, moving away from the sorts of criminalizing approaches that don't do anything to actually keep people safe toward much more sane drug policy is the direction that we think should, things should go in. Melissa Moore, she's the director of the Drug Policy Alliance. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.